Welcome to Contemplative Revolution, a WCCM podcast. I'm Elba Rodriguez. In this episode, Professor David Tacey explores the entry into ecological awareness as an initiation into the transpersonal and universal dimensions of spirit. This talk was part of an evening event at the Meditatio Center in London. Ecology and spirituality. Begin with a quote or an epigraph to my talk by Thomas Berry. I think it's, a, it's virtually the motto of uh, eco-spirituality. The universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. Now, um, spirituality, of course, is difficult to define, as you know. But if I were to attempt a definition, I'd probably refer to it as the art of making compassionate connections. The essence of spirituality is relationship, or in old-fashioned terms, love, as this operates at different levels. Spirituality refers to the bonds we make with each other, with the indwelling soul, with nature and the cosmos. Now, as it says up here, already I want to disagree with my definition. Perhaps the notion that we make these connections is too grand or heroic and puts too much emphasis on the human will. Some philosophers, such as Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher, have said that these connections are always already present. I quite like that phrase, always already present. And perhaps all we do is recognize them. All we do is recognize them. I've got up a little spider's web as a, an example of the interconnectedness of all things. If we believe, I think, that we generate these links, the spiritual journey can degenerate into an ego trip. So I want to rephrase this in more mystical terms. Spirituality is the art of recognizing and supporting pre-existing connections in the unity of creation. Uh, spirituality is seeing and respecting the oneness of all things. It's the ability to see beyond diversity and difference to the underlying uh, uh, unity or spiritual core at the heart of things. Now, um, as I was, I was talking the other night at Westminster Cathedral about Aboriginal spirituality, and I'll touch on it a little bit, but I won't repeat it uh, because I know some of you were at that talk I gave on Tuesday night. Aboriginal people in Australia refer to spirituality as the dreaming, the dreaming, 
which is the mythopoetic basis of all that happens in their lives. Used to be uh, translated by um, anthropologists, the, the term for the Aboriginal word, which is chukupa, and in some different tribes, it's actually um, alchiringa. You might have heard of these terms, I'm not sure. It used to be translated into the English word dream time. And that's to record on that Aboriginal elders don't like the idea of dream time because it seems to fix their spirituality in some earlier time. Whereas they want to see, quite rightly, I think, spirituality as a dimension of reality in the here and now uh, and in the future, not just in the past, but in the past as well. So they've dropped the term time and changed it to dreaming. I don't know if that can be pushed a little bit, can it? Uh, so that it's more... Yes, that's it. Thank you. Thanks. Central to the dreaming is the idea of uh, what's called in Aboriginal language, wungud, or pattern thinking. And by pattern thinking, Aboriginal people mean the interconnectedness of all things, uh, which is to, for them to think ecologically. Here's the first link I'm making with spirituality and ecology. And this... Um, painting here is a good example of Aboriginal art, which is being done at the moment in Australia by Aboriginal people. And you can see that there are lots and lots of little nodal points, and they're all connected and interconnected. Um, th this kind of art has many sorts of uh, interpretations. Some will see the, the nodal points as water holes, for instance and the connections between them as pathways between those waterholes. I'm not so sure about that interpretation because there aren't so many waterholes in the desert. Um, you might have to travel 100 miles between waterholes. I'd prefer to see it more metaphysically as um, nodal points of spiritual life and the way that spiritual life is connected to everything else. So. It depends who you're talking to as to how that kind of artwork is, um, is interpreted. To respect one good or the spirit, uh, says Aboriginal elder David Muljali, is to attend to the connections between all things. And a beautiful Aboriginal term, to look after country. That's the term they, they, they say. And of course, obviously, English isn't their first language. And many of them speak several Aboriginal languages. In fact, there are 550 Aboriginal languages, which is what's made communication between um, European Australians like myself and Aboriginal Australians so difficult because with 550 languages, it's very hard to get uh, much communication going. Unlike the situation in New Zealand, where there's only one language, which is Maori language, and that has made the relations between European New Zealands and Indigenous New Zealands much easier 
if there's only one language, well then a lot of people can learn it, including people like ourselves. But if there are 550 languages, it makes it so much more complicated. Many of those languages have very tragically died out over the last, uh, well, since the time the British arrived in Australia. Depending again on who you talk to, some people, of course, say the British invaded Australia as a sovereign nation and ran up the Union Jack and, and called it uh, a British colony. Now, in his moving apology, and it was a very moving apology uh, to Aboriginal people, I was certainly one of the many in tears as this was delivered, the then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said that Aboriginal people are the oldest continuing cultures in human history. And this is true. They're even older than any of the, uh, the, the cultures in, um, in Africa, such as the Kalahari Bushmen. They go back a minimum of 40,000 years of continuous history, and some say it's as high as possibly 60 or even 70,000 years. And it makes our Judeo-Christian culture look relatively modern and contemporary. However, Kevin Rudd did not point out that their survival, the survival of Aboriginal cultures, is due largely to the spiritual pact with the world called the dreaming, which bound people to earth in love and dedication. So there we have laughs all round. However, uh, there's a missing link, of course, between what's frequently referred to as white Australia and black Australia. And the link, of course, is that uh, white Australia, like white people almost everywhere, are struggling with this thing called spirituality, or struggling with religion. Uh, religion in Australia is in a similar position to religion in Britain, where you have about seven or eight percent of the population engaged in religion on a ongoing basis, the culture is overwhelmingly secular. And when um, an anthropologist from Sydney, William or Bill Stanner, wrote an, an essay called The Dreaming in 1953, he uh, <clears throat> reported on field work that he'd done up in the Daly River District, which is in the northern end of Australia, near Darwin, in the Northern Territory. He came across an elder who said, white man got no dreaming, him go another way. White man, him go different. Him got road, belong himself. These are very haunting words for me and for many other Australians. Um, in fact, you can see that Stanner's book is actually called White Man Got No Dreaming. Well, white man did have a dreaming, of course, um, called either Christianity or Judaism. Um, but it, was, it, di it didn't stick long. And in fact, by about 1850s, 1860s, um, Christianity and Judaism in Australia were both in rapid decline. Um, I can talk more about that later. So the idea that white man got no dreaming is the Aboriginal perception that uh, the white people who um, settled, or as I said, depending on your politics, invaded the country, um, actually have no spiritual culture at all. 
So the missing link is the dreaming or spirituality in our terms. Spirituality is the basis of all that exists in Aboriginal cultures and without it there would be no ecological consciousness at all. I found this uh, book, The Missing Link to the Spirit-Filled Life, a 30-day teen devotional. There's a lot of concern now among many people about what's missing in our culture. And of course, young people are often the ones that most sorely feel this absence. Now, the efficacy of Aboriginal spirituality or cosmology can hardly be underestimated, seeing that it has nurtured and kept alive indigenous peoples across eons of time in inhospitable terrain, such as where I grew up in Central Australia, in the desert, um, and extreme climatic conditions where it can get to 55 degrees centigrade in the shade. And of course, there isn't any shade. So who knows how much it actually is in the sun. So the subtle bonds with nature, which they call the dreaming, make possible an extraordinary sensitivity to place. And these bonds are to be respected because I think they have genuine survival value. So it's the survival value of these spiritual bonds that needs to be accentuated. Whereas our modern Western scientific worldview, which encourages the despiritualization of nature, has an appalling record course, when it comes to sustainability, as you know. Now, what history tells us is that um, to be truly ecological, we need to become spiritual at the same time. Now, why is this so? Because spirituality governs our relations with the other, used in that philosophical sense, the other the other meaning other people, the other meaning nature, other meaning landscape, the cosmos, and indeed all things visible and invisible. As Fritjof Capra put it, I heard him when I was last in London at the Essex Church. He was giving a talk on this. Um, he said, ecology and spirituality are fundamentally connected because deep ecological awareness ultimately is spiritual awareness. And of course, there are many books um, which you might be aware of, those of you who made this an area of personal or, and or professional interest, on spiritual ecology, sometimes also called eco-spirituality. Um, in the religious traditions, of course, it's referred to as eco-theology. The leading exponent would be uh, a person I mentioned earlier, Thomas Berry. But of course, Teilhard de Chardin um, is a great exponent of what is now called today eco-spirituality or eco-theology. This book sub is subtitled The Quiet Revolution. So why is um, uh, ecological awareness ultimately spiritual awareness? And the answer is because only the spiritual can perceive and comprehend the interconnectedness of all things, which is what ecology is. Our normal everyday awareness is essentially mechanistic and dualistic. It see th sees things incompletely, partially, not in relation 
to the totality or the whole. So in this regard, all ancient indigenous cultures, not just the ancient people from my country, but the ancient people from all countries, have to be our guides. The way forward is the way back to a vision of the world in which love breaks from its personal envelope to penetrate to the wider reality. Here's Thomas Berry again. This is a quote from his book called The Dream of Nature. Just now, one of the significant historical roles of the primal people of the world, he says, is not simply to sustain their own traditions, which is difficult enough given the impact of colonization and the way colonization has destroyed their cultures, but to call the entire civilized world back to a more authentic mode of being. I agree with this, all except for one thing. I'm not so sure about the word civilized because it would suggest that the indigenous people aren't civilized. <laughs> the entire civilized world need to be, you know, pay attention to the indigenous world. I've, growing up in Central Australia, I was always astonished by how incredibly civilized Aboriginal people are at the level of spiritual and religious matters. And indeed, how, how barbaric my own culture was at the level of spiritual and, and religious matters. Whereas when um, the British arrived in Australia, a spiritually undeveloped culture, but very technologically developed. As you know, in those days, Britain ruled the waves, and the British Empire was vast and, and, and very powerful. Met a culture that was technologically undeveloped. You know, they, you might say they hadn't reached the stage of developing the wheel. So in fact, they were what, what we would call in from a European perspective, Neolithic cultures but their spirituality was way more developed than ours. And I always think of the interaction between the British and Aboriginals as like mirror images of each other. Um, what the one had too much of, the other had very little of, and similarly what the other had a lot of, the other had very little of. So no wonder there was great conflict, misunderstanding. Of course, there were many massacres, there were many uh, a tragic incident, some of which are only being brought to life in, in Australian and British history just over the last few years. Now this doesn't mean that we have to, I think, dispense with our modern scientific consciousness. As you know, it's invaluable. I wouldn't be here um, by virtue of the aeroplane that carried me here without the advantages of modern science. No. So what we have to do, I think, is go back to pick up what we've lost, and this has been the cost of our overdevelopment of intellect and rationality at the price of the spirit. Um, as Ian McGilchrist here in Britain would probably say, we have to recover the lost hemisphere of the brain, you know, the poetic and mythic side of our nature, which has been eclipsed by rationality and logic. Don't know if any of you have read The Master and His Emissary. It's a magnificent book by Ian McGilchrist. Unless we can pick up this lost dimension. You, you, you've got it there, is it? Oh, fantastic. Yes. 
The chances of us becoming fully ecological, says Ian McGilchrist in that book, are very remote. So it, it's, it's a matter of great urgency. Now, uh, growing up in Alice Springs, which is the town right at the very heart of the continent of Australia, I, I saw that their, um, their animation of landscape impressed me enormously. Um, their uh, understanding of the spiritual nature of, of nature, the spiritual reality of nature, was that it was filled with spirits. They were animistic religions, uh, what Christianity would frown upon as pagan or pantheistic. And yet, what was um, involved in that um, animistic religion is what I said earlier, was precisely, I think, what kept them alive over tens of thousands of years. So I knew that I couldn't adopt that particular form of spirituality as my own, as a Westerner who'd grown up uh, in a Christian uh, family. And then I went to university partly to discover more about what this animism was all about. And of course, back in those days, the 1960s and early 70s, um, knowledge hadn't caught up with spirituality. So all you got was um, a very arid understanding of things. The Aboriginal animation of the world was largely seen as the product of a primitive mind that the West had long rejected and superseded. For instance, in my literature class, the habit of animating the world uh, was referred to as personification. That is to say, they were personifying, um, imagining, if you like, uh, spirits in place, whereas there was no such things. These were purely coming from the heads of Aboriginal people. They were projecting human emotions onto inanimate things. In psychology, it was seen as pure projection. Um, and in philosophy, of course, it was uh, understood as anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism literally means from the, words, the Greek words anthropos and morph. Anthropos means human and morph means form. So they were projecting human forms onto the land. So I was very disappointed by my university education because that's all we could, could come up with. Because as Ian McGilchrist would, would say, uh, a whole hemisphere of our brain had gone to sleep. We didn't see the world except through the eyes of rationality and logic. So I knew this was wrong. Um, this is uh, very, very close to where I grew up. This was only uh, a small bike ride away from, from the house where I lived. That's the McDonald Rangers in the background, one of the ghost guns in the foreground. I knew deep down that we had to learn from this ancient culture that we lived in a dualistic world that sees psyche or soul as an aspect of the human mind only, and that nature and the universe are devoid of soul. Our need is to overcome this, what's often referred to as Cartesian split, because it was Descartes, who one, you know, one of the key figures of the European Enlightenment, who said the soul is something in human consciousness but any soul experienced in the world, any soul experienced in nature, is merely projected there by our minds. There is no soul in the natural world. The only soul is in us. So this was 
when I went to university, I'd hope it's changed a bit. Now, I think it has, actually, in philosophy and anthropology and sociology and, indeed, in psychology. There's much more respect for, the indi for indigenous knowledges, especially in countries like Australia, which are you know, transplanted European societies based on indigenous land. Now, uh, after I uh, went to university in Australia, I moved to the United States to work with this man, James Hillman. And um, I also did analysis with him because he said, you know, we can talk and talk and talk, but um, it might be, might be more rewarding for you if you actually become my, we did say patient, because I, at that stage I was an academic and I wasn't merely patient in search of a doctor, but I was in search of further work in the postdoctoral area of depth psychology and spirituality. He wrote, had written a book called The Thought of the Heart and the Soul of the World, a brilliant book which um, is still available. And he said, as we move further into soul, everything it touches becomes animated. In Latin, of course, soul is anima, and that's the important etymological connection between anima and animation. So whatever anima touches is animated. It's not just a linguistic connection, it's a philosophical one as well. At first our inner lives and loves are stirred as we come into contact with the soul, he says. But this is a first stage. Soul yearns to move beyond the personal to unite with its transpersonal source. So there's a transpersonal and a personal dimension to soul. And he goes on to say that the aim of soul is to make us intimate with an ever-widening sphere of reality in order for us to develop a deep ecological awareness. The resources of spirit and soul have to be activated. So toward the end of his life, James Hillman, who began his, uh, his career as a psychologist, then became a philosopher, and toward the end of his life, his main interest was, in fact, ecology. And he, was, he pioneered this, uh, this area called eco-psychology. It's a very interesting discipline. Theodore Rozak has written a book called Eco-Psychology, and I used to use that as a textbook in my classes when I taught a course on eco-psychology at the university. So um, we have this prejudice in our culture that the soul is within. It's quite typical, isn't it, for us to all say, you know, if I've got a soul, if there is a soul, it's got to be within me. But it was through uh, working with uh, James Hillman uh, he put me in touch with the Neoplatonic tradition, um, people like Plotinus and the Renaissance theorists such as Ficino and Bruno, um, and they have the view, not that the, that the soul is within us, but indeed that we are inside the soul, that the soul is bigger than us. And then I started to ponder about this and think about this at great length. And I started to think of the soul as like a, a sort of an inverted funnel. And you might say that 
when we first experience the soul, it feels to us to be very personal, you know, because particularly in the field that I was trained in, Jungian psychology, um, you first encounter the soul in your dreams, in your interiority, in your deepest thoughts, in your unconscious, and so on. And that's, um, you might say, the beginning of the journey. And as you go deeper into the funnel, it seems to me to widen out and broaden. And that's where uh, mystics are very, very important. I was recently reading Bede Griffith's uh, book called The New Vision of Reality, where he spoke about this too. He said he first experienced the soul through prayer and meditation and contemplation, and then gradually the world itself became enchanted. The world itself took on soul, a dimension that it hadn't had before. So it's like you have to go in in order to go out. You know, it's a sort of a paradox. You turn within and deepen the inner life in order to experience the enchantment of the world. So one of my books, I've written 14 books, um, some of which are on this topic. One uh, is called Re-Enchantment, because I think this is what happens when the soul um, is allowed to develop into its, uh, into its cosmic dimensions, and the world becomes re-enchanted. Uh, there's a New Age movement, which is all very interested in these topics, but the New Age movement is itself, I think, a product of our capitalist society. It keeps the sacred in the private realm. So uh, social justice doesn't loom large for the New Age. Rather, all that is important for the New Age, it seems to me, is just to feel better about yourself and to have a personal salvation or a personal experience of enlightenment. And of course, the, the true spiritual journey is in fact an overcoming of that concern with uh, one's own self. So when I meet a lot of um, conservative religious people who say, oh, you shouldn't do meditation. It's just narcissistic and navel-gazing and all these sorts of things. You still hear this today. There's a lot of opposition to, to not only meditation from the East, but also meditation from our own Catholic and Anglo-Catholic and and Benedictine traditions. That it's really a misunderstanding about interiority. You go in in, in order to go out. It's a, it's a two-fold movement. You don't go in in order to stay in. If you go in in order to stay in, that is indeed navel-gazing, or, or um, you know, narcissism, the, to use the psychological, psychopathological term. So I think what we require in Judeo-Christianity is a new understanding of theology. I don't know about you, but when I was a child growing up in the church, I was very much on that left-hand side. The universe was here, and God was way, way up there. I can remember taking one of my first plane flights from Melbourne to Alice Springs, and a little girl was looking out the window and going like this, looking up, and her mother said, what are you looking for, darling? And she said, oh, I'm hoping to see God. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I listened. And the mother said, no, darling, he's way further up than that. <laughs> way further up. And then, and then I started to think, you know, we've got this wrong. Um, God is, is, we are in God. 
So now here's the difference between pantheism and panentheism. And this was very important for me, this difference. Am I hooked up here or can I walk? I can walk. This seemed to me to be close to the Aboriginal world that uh, I partly had a lot of access to. That is to say pantheism. Pan means all and theism means the divine. So it's the divine in all things. So God is, is the universe and therefore uh, all indigenous traditions, uh, many indigenous traditions follow this. Now a German philosopher in the uh, 19th century in trying to reconcile the traditional monotheistic theology with indigenous cultures came up with this term panentheism, which is such an important term for understanding the relationship between ecology and spirituality. Panentheism means all in God, as distinct from pantheism, which means God in all. Now, why are they different? Well, if pantheism says God's in all things, then there's, the God, there's no room for the transcendental dimension of God. God is just in all things, which is what Judeo-Christianity refers to as idolatry or paganism. But if all things are in God, then there's plenty of room, as it were, left over to experience God as a transcendental reality, not just as an immanental reality. And I think it's this panentheism. Uh, I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was... Um, at a mass at St. Aloysius in Oxford, which was the church of Gerard Manley Hopkins. You know, he said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It shines like the shining from shook oil. And I think Gerard Manley Hopkins was writing from a position of panentheism. And of course, a lot of uh, uh, people in Christianity still criticize that as pantheism. But we've got to educate people to realize the difference between these two important ideas. French poet Paul Elouard said, there is another world, but it is in this one. And that is a panentheistic idea. There is another world, but it is in this one. In other words, there's a different consciousness that can be uh, seen as, as uh, a dimension of the world we're already in. And that is the dimension where I think the spirit and God resides. St. Francis of Assisi, of course, who, uh, the, as you know, the Vatican very, very importantly, I think, made him the patron saint of ecology some years ago. He felt that God was in all things, but <laughs> he was in danger of being burnt at the stake, despite the fact that he later became a saint, because in his day, the authorities worried that he was an animist who was finding uh, you know, the divine in trees and flowers and birds, brother, son, and sister moon, and so on. In fact, if you read the, the biography of Francis of Assisi, you'll see that a great many of his followers were in fact murdered by the Catholic Church as pagans and heretics because the, the God that the Church then recognized was the God there back up, way, way up, not in this world, because this world was seen as fallen and sinful and therefore not possessing God. Now, I mentioned Teilhard before. Teilhard, of course, 
in particularly in his book, The Hymn of the Universe, talks about this process whereby we can hopefully learn to discover the spirit in this world. He was a paleontologist as well as being a Jesuit priest. Now, John Paul II and uh, our current Pope Francis have called for an ecological conversion. And in Laudato Si, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, I've read it a number of times, he calls for a global ecological conversion. It's necessary to stimulate and sustain ecological conversion, says um, said John Paul II. This is a depiction, I think, of animism, the world of pantheism. This is the world that I grew up alongside in Central Australia. Now, one of the things that's occurred to me is there's a difference between spirits and spirit. Um, I'm being a Westerner and coming, my father came from, my father's family came from Leicestershire. My mother's from Donegal in Ireland. So I've got a lot of Europe in me, although you don't see yourself as Europe, do you, anymore, after Brexit? Uh, uh, aren't you just a little island all by your lonesome self? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, Wordsworth is a very important figure in eco-spirituality. Indeed, probably you, like me, studied him in school, but I bet you didn't study him as an ecological poet. <laughs> but if you read him carefully, particularly lines written above Tintern Abbey, he talks of emotion and a spirit that rolls through all things. So the difference between spirit animating the presence of the world and spirits in trees, I can't come at spirits. It's a conversation I recently had with Father Lawrence Freeman in uh, Sydney just a couple of weeks ago. Um, he said that you know, we're too far removed from spirit, so we can't engage in that kind of re-enchantment. And I definitely agree with him. But we can actually, with the aid of the, the so-called romantic poets of Britain, such as William Wordsworth, move toward the incense of spirit. This is a fellow who's influenced me a great deal, Lynn White. He said, more science and technology are not going to get us out of the present ecological crisis until we find a new religion, he argues, or rethink our old one. Well, I don't think we need a new religion, but I do think we need to rethink our old one along the lines of panentheism. Since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious, whether we call it that or not. So Lynn White, who was professor of medieval history at Stanford University, talks in this essay, about the historical roots of our ecological crisis. Einstein is very interesting. He says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. I think that's so very important. And there are so many people trying to develop green technology and green science and, and green politics. As everything's going green a bit at the moment, but you could say it's using the same dualistic consciousness that created the ecological problem in the first place. And so I often think of Albert Einstein. We need more than simply a tweaking of the consciousness we have. We need to develop a new kind, well, not new, it's a very ancient kind of consciousness 
that got overlaid, particularly during the course of the intellectual enlightenment. In the Renaissance, they conceived the world soul in this particular fashion, as a feminine figure, you'll see there, linking up what's called the chain of being, linking to the God above, the transcendent God with the cloud, through the figure, who looks a lot like uh, our, our Mother of God, Our Lady, actually, with the stars, very much like uh, the way uh, Virgin Mary is described in the book of Revelation. And then you can see there below is a monkey and then the world. So the, the soul of the world is seen as the thread that connects all things together. Now, spirituality is a personal thing, as I said, is a very popular view today. I think it's true and not true. So that's why I've said at the top, yes and no. Of course, spirituality is personal in the sense that it's about our meditation. It's about our inner exploration. It's about our contemplation. But if it just remains personal, then it becomes an ego trip rather than a spiritual journey and certainly doesn't become ecologically sound if it remains personal. This is a fellow in Britain that I've been very influenced by. And in fact, I'm going to meet him in a couple of days' time. Does anyone know Jonathan Rousey? Yeah, yeah, he's a fascinating fellow. I believe he was a chess champion or something in Britain. And he's turned towards spirituality. Actually, you can see the chess pieces behind him there in that, uh, in that photograph. He's looking very, very earnest in that uh, photo. He wrote a work um, published here in London called Spiritualize revitalizing spirituality to address 20th century challenges. It's a very important book and I can strongly recommend it. I think it's uh, available in hard copy form and it's also available on the net too. I downloaded it for free. Mar marvelous things you can find on the internet. A lot of rubbish there too. It's a bit like an open sewer. But um, it, it's also good. He says, many recognize that the world's major problems have spiritual elements that are not adequately acknowledged or addressed, partly because we don't seem to know how to conduct a debate at that kind of fundamental level. So he's been thinking about this, and I think he's absolutely right. And he goes on, he says, this spiritual perspective matters now because the challenge of finding a more substantial and grounded public role for the spiritual arises in the context of weakening of public institutions, he means the churches, acute ecological crises and widespread political alienation and democratic stress. And yet as things stand, without the forms of tradition and institutional support afforded by religion, it's hard to see how the spiritual could be anything other than a private matter. See, this is the tragedy of our times. Lots of young people are saying, spirituality, yes, religion, no. And I understand it, because religion can be very boring, particularly if you're 18 or 19 years old, you don't know how to relate to it. It becomes less boring as you get older. I mean, I used to try and bring my, my children to church, but I gave up trying because they said, Dad, we just don't do this. This is not part of our culture. But if you have spirituality but not religious, which is a category, of course, it's one of the biggest categories in Britain at the moment, 
then you have spirituality in danger of being much more personal and confined to the private realm. It's very hard to see how a culture that was spiritual but not religious is going to have any impact on society at all. How is it going to work towards social justice if it's not uh, collectively organised in, in groups and, and, and institutionalised? And although institutions have their drawbacks, they have enormous positive advantages. It's very hard to describe or to uh, argue for these positive elements for young people, as I found trying to teach young university students for the last 35 years. And he goes on, he says, with only a shallow engagement in the subject, we, reach, we risk branding the spiritual as something insubstantial and completely distinct from religion, rather than something important that stands in a critical relation to it. I think that's a really important point he's making. Our collective understanding of spirituality is oblique and nebulous when we need it to be fundamental and robust. One of my colleagues in, in the UK is Robert Siegel, who lives right up at Aberdeen and is professor of religion and theology there. And he said that if spirituality is completely pulled away from religion, it, it will evaporate like the morning mist and have no impact on society or the common good and no impact on morality and ethics and as I said, social justice. And so I think this is the danger we face at the moment. It's all the rage now to separate spirituality from religion. I do sympathize with it, but ultimately I think that the two of them should be, as uh, Jonathan says, in critical relation to each other. In other words, they should be in dialogue with each other. Spirituality involves a dethroning of the ego. Now, in the New Age, they talk about killing off the ego. Now, I'm not a very big fan of that at all. I think if you kill off the ego, ten others emerge in its place, you know. The ego is, as Jung would say, is archetypal. You can't kill it off, but you can perhaps relativize it. I think that's the word I would use. Jung um, talks about dethroning the ego. That's the word he uses. So instead of being on the throne, it's actually, you know, serving. Jung, I think, invented that famous phrase, the ego makes a lousy master but a wonderful servant. You know, that's become popular in my country. I'm not sure about here because I don't come here often enough. But I feel that um, to enter into the spiritual does require a rite of passage of kind, of a sort. Uh, I was very, very influenced as a, as a child by an encounter I had with uh, an Aboriginal elder called Warren. And I, this is what happens in the deserts of, South, of, 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 um, of Australia, is that you sometimes meet people that you've never met before, and they come up and say these extraordinarily profound things to you just the way they live. It's, it's what Americans would call a shamanic culture. Now, we don't use that word shamanic in Australia, but um, Aboriginals refer to themselves as living according to sacred law rather than shamanic. And one of the key elements of sacred law is that the ego has to be symbolically put to death 
before the spirit can be fully released. Well, we have this in Christianity. If you think about the fourth gospel, where Nicodemus is in the dark of night, presumably by that stage Jesus has become a suspect figure and Nicodemus doesn't want to be exposed or become seen as a, some sort of associate of Jesus. He says, Lord, tell me, you know, Jesus, tell me uh, what is the key to spiritual life. And of course Jesus says, well, you must be born again. Kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, who's the neoliteralist, says, What? How can I a mother's womb and be born again? How can I as an adult? And Jesus starts to sort of almost scorn him at that point and says, What? Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know the uh, by Nicodemus? Now, According to some scholars I've read recently, that actually happened. It's not historical, it's allegorical or theological. I think a lot of the fourth gospel is written like that, actually. It's, it doesn't even really pretend to be historically accurate, which is why it's so dissimilar from the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But even if it didn't happen historically, it's still important. It shows you how important spiritual rebirth is to any dan In Aboriginal cultures, um, by the time they turned um, 12 or 13, uh, very similar to the Jewish bar mitzvah, or bat mitzvah for girls, young women, uh, they were circumcised and they were put through various rituals and they were symbolically put to death. Uh, they were often buried in a shallow grave and, um, and starved of, of, of food and uh, water was... There were scarifications across the chest. They were, as you can see there, painted white, which death, which is why when the British first arrived, ancestral ghosts arriving off ships They'd, of course, never seen people on ships, never seen white people before, to be the dead returning. Degree of awe in Aboriginal people, and that's why when Captain Cook, James Cook, first met them in Botany Bay, it wasn't a hostile reception at all. They were, they were welcoming of the British uh, until discovered that the British wanted to claim the whole continent of Australia uh, for the Crown of England, and style. But at the start they had nothing but reverence and awe uh, because of the, the, the colour white. So anyway, in the rites of passage you emerge uh, from this period or the trials of initiation, you're given a new name, you're given the mysteries of the tribe, and then at the end you become an adult, as it were. As an Aboriginal elder said to me recently, you people in your white culture, adolescence seems to go on forever. It starts at 10 and ends at about 35. A lot of people, or, or even people in the 50s, can still be psychologically adolescent. He said, for us, adolescence lasts between five and eight days. Uh, you go into the initiation process as a child. You have your rites of passage, your separation from your tribe, the, 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 the liminal period of transition. 
your re-immersion into society at the end, and at the end of that period you emerge as an adult. And he said, we can't afford to have this expensively long period of adolescence because people who are adolescents don't know who they are. And as nomadic tribes, we can't afford to carry all that uncertainty. You have to be either a child or an adult. So this is very important, I think, in view of um, the ecological awareness that I think is emerging, that some, something has to die in for something else to be born. Now, I put this one up there. This is Sinonophus destroying the sacred oak because it was pagan. So Christianity has, as you know, an ongoing struggle with paganism, an ongoing struggle with nature worship, which it saw as uh, very, very uh, um, uh, dangerous because you could see him waving the cross at those people there and cutting the oak tree. So it's very be interested to engage in some, some discussion with some of you later. Where's my, my timepiece? I hope I'll leave plenty of time. About many Christians are now trying to sort of, in a sense, reinvent themselves as greenies. And you see, this is the history that we have to contend with. We've been spending hundreds and hundreds of years fighting off who revered nature and revered the natural world. And it's very, very hard, I think, to some, suddenly turn around and pretend that our tradition is green. Um, Teilhard de Chardin saying, we are not human beings live, having a spiritual experience, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Uh, 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 an expression which has really taken off, actually, in the, in the popular world. This is a friend of mine, Professor Norman Harbour. He's a very, very interesting man. He's a Lutheran. And he's become one of the world's leading exponents of this new area called eco-theology. And he, you know, just as um, uh, Al Gore did that wonderful program called An Inconvenient Truth, uh, Norm Harbour wrote a book called An Inconvenient Text about the Bible. Is the Bible green? He's like me, actually. Dolm Harbell has a very similar relationship to Christianity that I do. That is, like me, he's, he's fundamentally Christian, deeply respectful, but has a critical relationship to it at the same time. I don't think that, uh, as it currently stands in its traditional forms, Christianity can easily be reconciled with uh, things green. And if we do that, it can be very, very superficial. Um, you can see there that uh, at the bottom there, this is a talk he gave in Darwin. We were talking about Darwin a minute ago, um, which is the top end of this. And he says this, in Christianity, earth and nature are slightly unreal, not important. Humanity lives on earth, but in St. Paul's phrase, our real citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await saviour from there. So theologian Norm Harbour writes, numerous scholars in recent writings have sought to demonstrate the green credentials of God as creator. Few, however, have sought to face the fact that the portraits of God, especially in the Old Testament, are often grey rather than green. And I said, Norm, are there 50 shades of grey? And he, and he said, very funny. Um, so that's, that's a section from the inconvenient text. So I'm all for revising Christianity, not throwing it out the way 
it's so popular for so many people today to chuck it out. We've got to revise it, renew it, and bring it up to date. And the, 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 the Jews have a wonderful tradition called Midrash, which is about making new the old traditions. I'm having discussions at the moment with uh, Rabbis David and Helen Freeman, who run the West London uh, Synagogue. They're very interested in this process of Midrash. And I think we don't have a similar term in Christianity. Um, but in Judaism, Midrash means to revise and bring the tradition up to date. These are three people, all, each of whom I have personally met, who came into trouble with the Catholic Church because they clashed with what Norm Harville calls heavenism. You know, that, that, you remember that first, uh, uh, when heaven is way up there and the universe is down here? The first, the one on the bottom left, of course, is John O'Donoghue. Has any of you read his stuff? Wonderful. Was a Catholic priest, was pushed out and said he was a pagan and an animist um, and a creationist. And then eventually, of course, he became one of the world's great writers in spirituality. John O'Donoghue, his most important book being Anamkara, which literally means soul friend in, uh, in, uh, in Irish Gaelic. The top right-hand corner is a dear friend of mine, Paul Collins, uh, a member of the Order of the Sacred Heart, the Sacre Coeur. And down below, of course, is uh, a very notorious and, and, and controversial Matthew Fox, who faced a similar fate. And all three of them got turfed out of the, um, of the Catholic Church for their animistic views. So, in other words, what I, I'm wanting to present tonight is not just that this is an easy thing, for those of us in the Catholic Church, it's a difficult thing to do, to bring ecological consciousness to bear in a tradition which has emphasised the transcendental above the imminent or imminental sense of the divine. And these are... Uh, I've I said recently I'm in danger of sanctifying these three figures, you know, as martyrs to the cause. But to me they are, each of them, great Catholic, each of them priests, were Catholic priests who, who were thrown out because of the charge of animism. So here we come back to Thomas Berry, who wasn't thrown out. Um, he says, if God is speaking to us through the universe, and if we are now seeing that the universe functions differently from what earlier Christians thought, then we must have a different way of articulating our Christian belief. And this is the revisionist uh, attitude to theology that I think is so very important. That book was on sale, wasn't it, at the back? The Dream of the Earth? I think I saw it on your table. I personally think this is the most important book in this entire field, The Dream of the Earth. And I read it and reread it over again. It is a very, very inspired work. So mysticism so often comes to our aid, I think. God is not only the father of all good things, this is Meister Eckhart talking from the late medieval period, but he is the mother of all things as well. Now, I emphasize this because why? Most of the religions that emphasize the sanctity of nature have the mother, not the father, as their central deity. For instance, in Aboriginal cultures that have so influenced me, the, the main deity is always the earth mother. Um, in the region I grew up in central Australia, her name is Kuna Pippi. And of course, some of the old priests 
who first met these Aboriginal people regarded them as Satan worshippers and all the rest of it. It was such a sad case of a cultural clash. John Paul II came to Alice Springs in 1987 to deliver not so much an apology, but a sort of a, an invitation, I think, for people from indigenous cultures to begin a conversation with Christianity about the nature of the divine. And it was a very, very interesting and very hopeful exchange, except some Aboriginal people said to me later that this was too little, too late for them because they'd been told all their lives that their religious lives were satanic and therefore and they had to convert and become like Western Europeans because God was an Englishman, you know. And they said it was too late to, to, uh, for them, but for those people who were open to it, such an invitation was interesting. So Meister Eckhart says, he is the mother of all things as well. When creatures have acquired their being from him, he still stays with creatures to keep them in being. This is so close to indigenous cultures. If God did not remain with creatures after they had started their own life, they would most speedily fall out of being. That's from a, a wonderful book called Meister Eckhart, from whom God hid nothing. In one of his essays, D.H. Lawrence wrote, the universe is dead for us, and how is it to come to life again? Knowledge has killed the sun, making it a ball of gas with spots. Knowledge has killed the moon, its dead little earth, pitted with extinct craters as with smallpox. The machine has killed the earth for us, making it a surface that you can travel over. How out of all of this are we to get back the grand orbs of the soul's heavens that fill us with unspeakable joy? How are we to get back Apollo and Atus, Demeter, Persephone, or as they say in Greek, Persephone, and the halls of Dis? We've got to get them back, for they are the world our soul, our greater consciousness, lives in. That's written in his essay called Apropos of Lady Chatley's Lover, right back in 1929. And you can see in D.H. Lawrence, right back in the 20s, that need for an ecological consciousness. In the same essay, he said, vitally the human race is dying. It's like a great uprooted tree with its roots in the air. We must plant ourselves again in the universe. It means a return to ancient forms, but we shall have to create these forms again. And it is more difficult than the preaching of an evangelist. I think that is so very true. So where can the West turn? Find something similar to what Aboriginal people called Didiri, which is a talk I gave at Westminster Cathedral on Tuesday night. Um, we have to go right back. Um, as I think I said to you earlier, on my mother's side, uh, my ancestry is Irish, on my father's from England, but not too many generations before that, actually France. My name, Casey, is actually a French. It's pronounced A. But, um, so I get French Catholicism and Irish Catholicism, two doses of Catholicism. It's, um, Celtic spirituality is a resource for me. It speaks of thin places. I love that idea of thin places, which I had to find that first in John O'Donoghue's work in Anamkara, where the veils between the material and spiritual are transparent, not opaque. So Thomas Berry says in Dream of, uh, Dream of the Earth, 
We must go far beyond contemporary culture to find a solution. None of our existing cultures can deal with this situation out of its own resources. We must invent or reinvent a sustainable human culture by descent into our pre-rational, our instinctive resources. Again, you could translate this into Ian McGilchrist's language and talk about hemispheres. Our cultural resources have lost their integrity. They cannot be trusted. What is needed is not transcendence, but incendence. Now, I like that word, but I don't think it's going to take on somehow. <laughs> you know, incendence. In other words, this is, incendence is the kind of transcendence you have when you're looking at the world through the eyes of panentheism that I talked about before the break. The divine in the imminent. And of course, our concern, or my concern, in talking to more traditional Catholics than myself, is to try to rest assured that this doesn't imply that there's no transcendent dimension to the divine, but there is an incendent dimension at the same time. I find Lawrence uncannily prophetic. He said, God knows it looks like a cul-de-sac now, but we've struggled on and on we must still go. We may have to smash things, then let us smash. And our road may have to take a great swerve that seems a retrogression. We must, as I say, make a great swerve in our onward going life course to gather up again the savage mysteries. Well, we wouldn't use that language anymore, would we? I'd hardly say my Aboriginal friends that they are savages. But that's what Lawrence said back in the 20s. But this does not mean going back on ourselves. We can't go back. So um, Lawrence came up with the idea that civilization has to engage in a kind of a spiralic. We, it looks like we're going back if you look at it from above, but if you look at it from the side, it's actually moving above. It's an evolutionary spiral. Do you get the image? I should have an overhead, but sorry, I just couldn't find one on the internet. So if you look at it down, it looks like a regression. But if you look at it from the side, it's actually a progression. Hence I use Freud's term, uh, you know, go to advance, we need to retreat. Retreat to advance, one of Freud's famous uh, uh, phrases in his essays on uh, psychoanalysis. This is Jung speaking. Through scientific understanding, our world has become dehumanized. Sorry for his sexism, but again, he wrote before feminism. Man feels himself isolated in the cosmos. He's no longer involved in nature and has lost his emotional participation in natural events, which hitherto have a symbolic meaning. Thunder is no longer the voice of a god, nor is lightning his avenging missile. No river contains a spirit. No tree means a man's life. No snake is the embodiment of wisdom. And no mountain still harbors a great demon. Neither do things speak to him, nor can he speak to things like stones, springs, plants, and animals. He no longer has a bush soul, which is an African term from the Kalahari Bushman, identifying him with a wild animal. His immediate communication with nature is gone forever, and the emotional energy it generated has sunk into the unconscious. Jung said that because he thought that a lot of people who came to him in psychotherapy had dreams where nature was alive, um, dreams where there was an enchantment in nature, 
And that's why he says it's sunk into the unconscious. We have been that mind that we have never known it, it says. We got rid of it before understanding it. And I think that's an interesting perspective on this. We got rid of that dreaming, mythic mind before understanding it. Now, Annie Dillard seems to be almost quoting from Jung in this marvellous book. Has anyone read Teaching a Stone to Talk? It's, yes. It's a magnificent novel. She says, It's difficult to undo our own damage and to recall to our presence that which we have asked to leave. Remember St. Boniface and, and chopping down the sacred oak I showed you a picture of? It's hard to desecrate a sacred grove and change your mind. And I think that's what Christianity is in the, is in the, is in the throes of that. It desecrates sacred groves. And now it's saying, oh, hang on, we need an ecological conversion all of a sudden. We douse the burning bush, which is a beautiful reference to the, uh, the Moses experience in the Old Testament, and cannot rekindle it. We are lighting matches in vain under every green tree. Did the wind once cry and the hills shout forth praise? Now speech has perished from among the lifeless, lifeless things of earth and living things say very little to very few. So it's a beautiful novel about this yearning that many of us have, certainly I have, uh, for hoping that we can rekindle the enchantment of nature, which we in the West have spent a great deal of time and energy trying to extinguish. This is Dave Foreman, founder of the American-based Earth, Earth First movement. He said, our problem is a spiritual crisis. The Purit He's talking as an American. The Puritans brought with them a theology that saw the wilderness of North America as a haunt of Satan, with savages as his disciples and wild animals as his demons, all of which had to be cleared, defeated, tamed, or killed. Opening up to the dark forests became a spiritual mission to flush evil out of hiding. I can almost say exactly the same thing about Central Australia and the clash of cultures there. If we're going to, to survive North America, we have to go back. Metaphorically, and I really think that's an important word, metaphorically, not literally, to that pilgrim shore again, let's seek to learn from the land this time round. That's Dave Foreman. Only man's presence can save nature. As the biologist Grant Watson put it, an Australian biologist, our task is to re-enter the dream of nature. Our task is to re-enter the dream of nature. You can hear more talks and conversations in the media section on our website, wccm.org, or in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. For WCCM, I am Elba Rodriguez.